0: Now take your Bibles with me and turn again to the Gospel of John, this time to the 11th chapter, the account of the raising of Lazarus. We're going to read a large portion today, uh, but really our focus is going to be on Christ's statement, uh, his I am statement in verses 25 and 26, Uh, but we are going to get the entire context by reading uh, beginning in verse 1 and uh, actually uh, another typo that's my fault to verse 46. Um, but uh, you can find that on page 897 in uh, our CART Bibles, if you grabbed one on the way in. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 46. Before we read God's word again, please join me in prayer. Oh Lord, we come to you now in your word. And you have called us to come, and you have called us to worship, and you have told us and promised us that you will speak to us in your word. And so we pray that you would. We pray that we would hear the risen voice of Christ, our Savior, in these words, speaking to us and calling us. And we pray that none of us would remain unchanged by hearing his voice. We pray that you would work in us the resurrection power of the life to come, O Lord, do it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Here now, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And now down to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. I remind you of our passage that we will be uh, looking at today, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Dear friends, it's hard uh, to imagine if there is a passage in the New Testament that has more of the smell of death than this one. It's right there explicitly in, in verse 39. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. Perhaps better is the King James, Lord, by this time he stinketh. And perhaps because we're not used to the scriptures being so blunt, or maybe because we have so far stuffed away the realities of death, we read the King James in its language as a curiosity. It was almost humorous, and we chuckle. Of course, every society has their taboos. Every society has their topics that shall not be named in polite conversation. In uh, Victorian England, uh, the taboo was sex. And so in that culture, they went to extremes to avoid unnecessary mention of intimate things. And they would go so far as that uh, if you had a table that had carved legs, you would cover it with a very long tablecloth that went all the way to the floor so that the curves of the mahogany would not be too suggestive. And if you had two books, one written by a male author and one written by a female author, you would never put them on the same shelf and next to one another for fear of insinuating too much. But their taboos are not our taboos. And what they kept buried under euphemism, the 21st century, now screams from every rooftop it can find. And the things that they spoke about open and plainly, like death and dying, we now shove aside and cover with euphemism. And so we no longer talk about people dying, we talk about people passing. We no longer mourn with those who mourn, we offer our condolences. And we take the bodies and we ship them away to be embalmed and beautified and laid on pillows in a dimly lit drawing room. And some of that is culture and some of that is decorum. But it means that it is hard for us to read this passage and to grasp the realities of human life and death that are written all over it. But verse 39 is a glimpse into a time that was not too long ago where life and death coexisted. And it happened in the normal course of your normal day and Everything happened in the home and right where the family was, and babies were born in the home, and couples were married in ceremonies in the home, and grandparents died in their bedrooms with family gathered around. A few centuries ago in Europe, there was a common expression. It was that in the midst of life, there is death. And there was. There was war and famine and cholera and dysentery and a thousand other things that could take your loved ones in the blink of an eye before you ever knew it, and you never knew when you spoke to a person one day whether they would be in the grave the next. In the midst of life, there is death. Now many of us have forgotten. Perhaps we've never even experienced what that smell of death is like, but it's everywhere in this passage. This passage is a wake-up call. This passage is smelling salts to the fact that unless the Lord should return first, the most beautiful, most lovely, most charismatic person you have ever met in this life will one day die and be laid in the grave, and the body will decay and it will not be what you remembered, and dust will return to dust, and ashes will return to ashes. And that was the reality for Lazarus, and for Martha, and for Mary. And that is the reality for every single person in this room. It's a blessing that the smell of the grave is everywhere in this passage. It's also a blessing that the smell of the grave is everywhere on Jesus in this passage. There's that puzzling statement by Thomas in verse 16. Let us also go that we may die with him. Now Jesus has just been talking about a dead man, and so it is easy for us to miss what he means. Thomas is not talking about going to Bethany to die with Lazarus. He's talking about going to Bethany to die with Jesus. And chapter 10 ended with what the uh, disciples are insinuating in verse 8, that there are people in high places who would like nothing more than to see Jesus dead. They've already tried to stone him. They tried to arrest him, but to no avail. And surely they will be on the lookout If Jesus returns to the village two miles from Jerusalem that is now swarming with people from the capital city and this family funeral has become a hornet's nest and Jesus is saying, let's go there, let's walk right into it. And for all of his faults and all of his doubts, Thomas sees what Jesus knew, that this climactic miracle is going to be the transition point from the the light of Jesus' ministry to the darkness of Jesus' death. And the, the, by the end of the chapter, the Jews, we find in verse 53, are beginning to plot that death, and it's all because of the raising of Lazarus. There is a curious thing that happens sometimes at funerals. Sometimes you've been to one where John chapter 11 is read. And then as soon as it is read, the minister begins to zero in on verse 35. Jesus wept. The minister begins to offer words of comfort and condolence and how wonderful it is that Jesus should be the one to come and to be incarnate and he should enter into our grief and he should share our heartache and he should come and he should weep with those who weep and he should mourn with those who mourn. And I don't intend to undo any of that. There is wonderful, incalculable comfort in knowing that Jesus mourns with his people. There is incalculable comfort in knowing that even though Jesus knew full well That before this day was over, Lazarus was going to come forth from the grave at the sound of his voice, and yet he weeps, and he does share the grief of his people. There is wonderful comfort in verse 35. But the point of this passage is not to convince you that Jesus has entered your grief in order to share it with you. The comfort of this passage is to tell you that Jesus has entered your death so that you can be raised in his life. That's the point of John chapter 11. Into this family where the the smell of death is everywhere, into this situation where the, uh, the conspiracy of crucifixion is already on the horizon, Jesus steps in and he speaks these words in verse 25, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And do you believe this? You see, Jesus zeroes in on who he is and what he's come to do. And so the greatest question that we could ask on Easter Sunday is, what does it mean that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? That's what I want to do with the remainder of our time. I want to drill down into this statement in verses 25 and 26 and I don't want to make it any more convoluted or, or, or any more complicated than it has to be. This is a very simple statement. We simply want to ask, what does it mean that Jesus is the resurrection? What does it mean that Jesus is the life And what does that mean for you? Three questions of this text today. We're going to begin. What does it mean that Jesus is the resurrection? Now, first, it's important that we understand that in in verses 25 and 26, Jesus is saying two things about himself. He's not just being wordy, as some pastors like to be on Easter Sunday, more than they ought to be. He's not simply repeating himself in different language to be flowery or wordy. He is separating out two different aspects of who he is and what he does. He says, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. And you can see that by the way that that statement is followed by two explanations. Perhaps it would be helpful if we paired them to understand what Jesus is saying. He tells Martha first, I am the resurrection, and then he follows that up. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. But then he tells her that he is the life. And he goes on to say, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And these are two different things. They're probably not sequential. He's not talking about one thing after another, uh, that you live and believe and die and live again, and living you believe and keep on living. They're not one after another. It's the same event It's the same kind of life, but it happens on on two different planes, we might say. Jesus is speaking about his power to bring physical life and spiritual life. As uh, Robert Murray McShane put it, he is the head of all dead believers, and he is the head of all living believers, physically and spiritually. There are two realities here. And so we need to understand that when Jesus says he is the resurrection, he is calling us to consider the fact that he holds the power of life after death. Because of who he is, the smell of the grave is not the final word on our mortal bodies. The amazing thing is that Martha is already on the cusp of grasping that for all the darkness and and all the light that she does not have and isn't walking in, the New Testament isn't laid before her, she is right on the cusp of getting that. And Jesus tells Martha, your brother will rise again. And it's hard to understand and hard to know what to make of this exchange between Jesus and Martha leading up to this statement. I think perhaps you could imagine it happening the way that it happens today, that if Jesus had been anyone other than Jesus, what would he have been doing? He would have been trying to comfort Mary the best that he knew how, saying something helpful, anything helpful really, just to fill that space of silence while he's standing with this grieving woman. If he had been anyone other than who he is, maybe that's what he would have been doing. And perhaps you have stood next to a casket with the body of somebody you love inside. And a friend comes along, and they have the absolute best intentions. And they say something like, well, he's in a better place now. Our suffering is over. And you know how it goes. They don't know what to say to you, and you don't know what to say to them, and so you, yeah, yeah, hmm And you just agree. And you wait for that awkward moment to be over. Maybe that's how it happens Uh, With Martha, Jesus says, your brother will rise again, and she has been surrounded by professional mourners and family friends for four days now. It was customary in Judea at that time. Even the poorest family had to hire at least two flute players and one professional wailing woman. And so there is all of this comfort and all of these people whispering platitudes to Mary and Martha for four days, and Jesus shows up and he says, you know, your brother will rise again, and maybe she, yeah, yeah, you're right. I know, he he will rise again on the last day. And so many people wonder if, if the Old Testament saints, if the Jews believed in a resurrection of the body, but here is Mary, this Old Testament saint, this believer, echoing the teaching of Isaiah. Perhaps chapter 26, verse 19. says, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to its dead. And in the midst of her grief, Martha says, I know, there's a resurrection coming. And I know that at the last, he will rise again on the resurrection of the last day. And I think Jesus is saying, in a sense, you're close. You're almost there, Martha. You're right. You've interpreted the Scripture's correctly. Yes, there is a resurrection. Yes, there is a great and glorious day when the dead will come forth, when the earth will give birth to its dead. Yes, there is hope beyond the grave, but the thing that you're missing, the point that you've missed, is me. I am the resurrection, he's saying. And he's echoing not only the teaching of Isaiah, but also the words that he has spoken earlier in the gospel. Who knows who knows if Martha was there when Jesus said it, but back in chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus proclaimed that as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Because there's a sense in which if we, could, if we could say it reverently that the Son doesn't need the Father's permission to raise the dead. He's already received that authority. The Son gives life to whom he will. Turn, turn with me back to chapter 5, John chapter 5. We're going to keep reading. We're going to pick it up in verse 25. John chapter 5, verse 25. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Do you hear that? Martha was hoping on the hour that was coming, there is a day at the last when they will be raised. And Jesus says, there's a day coming, yes, but the day is already here, he says. There is an hour coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see, Jesus is the one who wields the power of bodily resurrection. Yes, Martha, an hour is coming when all who are dead will be raised, but the one who commands that hour, the one who speaks that day, is standing before you and speaking your name, he's saying. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the one to whom all judgment has been committed, the one in whom is the power of life and death, And resurrection, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, wields the power of bodily resurrection. This also means that Jesus sets the pattern of bodily resurrection. He wields the power of resurrection, he sets the pattern of bodily resurrection. And this is the teaching everywhere throughout the New Testament. That what we can expect of our resurrected bodies, if we should die in Christ, what we can expect of our resurrected bodies is what we know of His resurrected body. Philippians chapter 3 puts it this way, From heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's the teaching of the scriptures. Jesus has the power of resurrection. Jesus sets the pattern of resurrection. Now all kinds of questions come in our mind when we hear this. Does that mean that we will be able to appear in rooms where the doors are locked? Does it mean that we will be able to ascend and descend? Does it mean that we'll be able to hide our appearance from those that we may not want to recognize us just like Jesus seems to have done? And I don't know. Nobody knows. There are more unanswered questions probably than answered questions when it comes to what exactly will our bodies be like. We don't know what they will look like. We don't know what abilities they'll have. We don't know what the, uh, the precise ideal body fat percentage, the, the risen glorified heavenly bodies will have. We don't know a lot of things about our glorious bodies, but we do know that when we are raised, our bodies, like Jesus, will be unable to see corruption or decay or degeneration forever. This is what we read in Romans chapter 6, verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. In other language, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. And this is where the raising of Lazarus really becomes a parable pointing beyond itself. Yes, it really happened. Yes, it's a historical event, a real miracle that Jesus performed, but it wasn't just about the raising of Lazarus. It was always meant to point forward to something else. Several years ago, one of our young people was asked in some gathering of the church, "What is so special about the raising of Lazarus?" and I've never forgotten the response. It was special because Lazarus got to die all over again. And it's true. He was raised, he came forth from the grave and he ate and he drank and he lived and he worked and he had an amazing story to tell but at some point he died all over again. And they wrapped his body in linen strips and covered him with pounds of spices and laid him in a tomb and sealed it and there the worm was quenched and the dust returned and Lazarus lay in the grave. But there's a day coming. There's a day coming when Lazarus will be first in line for glory, and so will you if you die in the Lord. Because it tells us that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and all those who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth. And it's because of who Jesus is. Jesus is the resurrection. And whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is the life? This is the second aspect of the statement uh, that he makes. He says, I am the life, and then uh, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, I mentioned already that this really is speaking of the spiritual life that Jesus gives, a different kind of resurrection. Part of the reason for understanding it this way is the word that our ESV translates as never. Uh, The Greek word is one, Iona. It literally means to the age. Unto the age. Literally it says, he who lives and believes in me shall not die unto the age. And so the question is, well, what age? What era? What, what eon is Jesus talking about? And the answer is not hard because it is everywhere in John's Gospel if you've read it. It is the overarching theme, the whole purpose of the book. Later in chapter 20, after Doubting Thomas sees and goes from being Doubting Thomas to Believing Thomas, and John says that I've written all of these things down. I've selected some because I couldn't get all of them, but I've written these things so that you may know You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name, and everywhere else, this life is called a life eternal, a life everlasting, zoane ionion, life unto the age, a life that never ends. And throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus presses home the teaching that there is a peace of eternity that can be experienced now, There is a gift that Jesus Christ gives to all who believe in him. It is spiritual life that cannot be extinguished and cannot be snuffed out and will never be interrupted even when the body passes from life to death. And Jesus is promising that he's the one who not only holds the power of bodily resurrection but of spiritual life that can never be lost. Now when Jesus speaks this way, when the scriptures speak this way, Don't make the mistake of thinking, well, this is probably just metaphorical. That's the way that we talk about things. We talk about an awakening. We talk about a higher consciousness. We talk about a new perspective on things. And language like that gets tossed around with everything from ecological awareness to your fitness routines and the new fad that you're into. Oh, I've had an awakening. I feel like I've been born again to this thing. But that's not what's going on. This is not just a human way to talk about a change in perspective. That happens sometimes. In 1988, the British philosopher Alfred Eyre choked on a piece of smoked salmon and was medically dead for four minutes. He chronicled his experience in an article entitled, What I Saw When I Died. I'll leave out the interesting bits. You can go and read it for yourself. Eyre was no believer a committed atheist, a founding member of the British Humanist Society. And yet, after these four minutes, there was a dramatic change in this man. His wife put it well. She said, "Freddie has got so much nicer since he died. (laughs) But his change, his change was not a resurrection. At least it wasn't a, a spiritual resurrection in the biblical sense. It was a metaphorical awakening. Here's how he ended uh, his article. He, He ended with these words. My recent experiences have slightly weakened my conviction that my genuine death, which is due fairly soon, will be the end of me, though I continue to hope that it will be. They have not weakened my conviction that there is no God. I trust that my remaining an atheist will allay the anxieties of my fellow supporters of the British Humanist Association. There are those who wish that when the scriptures speak of a a being born again, a spiritual life that will never end, they wish that this is all it was talking about. Just an awakening like any other change in perspective, but that's not what the scriptures are talking about. The Bible everywhere acknowledges that we are people with two intertwined essences or natures or not separate beings exactly, but there is a spiritual side and there is a physical side, and they are so intertwined that our sins mean that we all come into this world spiritually dead and physically dying, and they're united. But the promise of Jesus in John chapter 11, verse 26, is that those who put their faith in him will begin to live the life of resurrection glory even now. This is the way John Calvin put it. They who believe in Christ begin to live because faith is a spiritual resurrection. And this is the witness of the New Testament. Everywhere the New Testament talks about not only a salvation and a resurrection to come, but one that has already been begun. It talks in past tense or perfect tense sometimes. The Bible speaks of it as accomplished for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote to Ephesus He said that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Likewise, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is not... A metaphor, this is life Ionion, this is life to the age, this is spiritual life that can never be ended, this is the power of Christ's resurrection, working in dead sinners now to raise them up, to live to God, to put to death the earthly man, and to live unto Christ Jesus with obedience and faith and love and rejoicing. This is the new birth of John 3. This is life in abundance that Jesus spoke about, and it continues For eternity, even while we await the resurrection of our bodies. And it all comes from the hand of our risen Savior. That Jesus is the resurrection and He is the life. Now, one question remains, and that is what does this mean for you? We have to ask this question. Because you notice in the text that Jesus refuses to leave this at the theoretical level. He says to Martha, I am the resurrection. And the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is the question we have to ask today. This is the question Jesus is asking you today. By his word and by his spirit, do you believe this? It's nice to go home on a Sunday with more theological knowledge. Don't you love that feeling? It's nice to go home and to have maybe a few sermon notes and a few cross-references that you can pull out Monday morning, Tuesday morning as you have your quiet time and you can can sort through them. So I didn't catch everything he said, but I'm sure glad I've got it written down and isn't it great? And I'll, I'll grow in my understanding of all of these things. It's nice to be in the Lord's house on Easter Sunday and to sing and to pray and to listen to the sermon and maybe even come to the table, but without this question, without answering this question, do you believe this? This could all be for nothing, worse than nothing. Jesus presses home the fact that these blessings that he's been speaking to belong to those who believe in him. They are gifts that he gives to his children by faith, and that means that Jesus is willing to give life to his disciples. He is willing to unite his people to the power of his resurrection, to raise them from the death of sin to a life of obedience and rejoicing. He is willing to reconcile us to God by his perfect sacrifice and the blood of his cross. He's willing to give us an imperishable inheritance among the saints of God. He is willing to take us to heaven so that we may be with him where he is. But for those who refuse to believe this word, the promise of life, is swallowed up by the curse of judgment. Jesus said that he had the power to raise the dead. He has the power to call forth those who dwell in the dust, and that is what he will do on the last day. Remember what he said, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will come forth. All will come out. Even Alfred Ayer, who wished desperately that that death would be the end of him. He will come out and so will you and your body will be raised up whether you believe this or not. And Jesus says that some will be raised to the resurrection of life and others will be raised to the resurrection of judgment. These words made such an impression on John. Later as the Holy Spirit revealed things to him of what was to come. In the last days, in the final days, when this resurrection of judgment happens, he didn't just speak of the resurrection of judgment in terms of a fire that doesn't die and a worm that isn't quenched. You remember what he called it? He called it the second death. You see, there is something worse than verse 39 that, Lord, there, there's an odor. There is a second death, a death that continues. In a soul that cannot be extinguished, and yet dead is separated from the Lord and from his glory and from his mercy. And the question for you today is, do you believe this? He's calling you by his spirit to believe the good news that Christ has come and Christ has died and Christ has risen again, and he's calling you to believe that Jesus has entered into our death, that we may enter into his life and not have to face the second death. Now far be it from me to end an Easter sermon on a low note. So perhaps you who have already said, as, as Martha said, I believe this. Maybe you need to watch how the Lord treats Martha. Maybe you need to learn her lesson today. Jesus posed this question to her, and she was quick to answer. She said, yes, Lord, I believe. I, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. And later, if you keep reading, it's clear that she doesn't quite understand what all this means. It's the same Martha who later says, But Lord, there is this offense, this this grave, and I, I don't think you can stomach it. And she doesn't understand it. And there are many who would like to chide Martha for her unbelief and for her lack of perfect understanding. How could she so fully confess? This is almost a Peter moment. In the other Gospels, we see Peter. Who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And here, it's not Peter. It's Martha. I believe you're the Christ, the son of God, who is to come into the world. And what a wonderful confession. And it's all about Jesus. And she says, yes. And then later, she turns around, and she does some boneheaded thing like Peter always seems to do, and like you always seem to do. Oh, no, no, no. You, not this. And there are those that want to chide Martha in her ignorance. But if there are people who are offended by Martha's lack, it's not Jesus. He knows that her faith doesn't mean that all of her questions will be perfectly answered, nor do they have to be. He knows she might not understand everything that she could about her brother and about the last day and about spiritual life and about uh, what will happen and what will be like in all of these questions, but she has believed in Jesus. And that's the issue. Martha came with her grief, and her confusion, and her aching heart. And yes, Jesus wept with her. And he shared her grief. But he also said, Martha, let me me remind you who I am. I'm the resurrection. And I am the life. And do you believe this? Do you trust me? Martha said, yes. I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the Savior. I trust you even if all my questions aren't answered. And Jesus says, whoever believes in me shall live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. And if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And So brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Do you believe him? You may not have all of your questions answered today after one Resurrection Sunday sermon, you might not know what your glorified body will look like and and who will be there. Except we know this, that all those who believe in him will be there. Because he promises and he tells us that he has entered into our death in order that we may enter into his life. Believe it for the sake of Jesus Christ and to see his glory. Please pray with me. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your word and for your promises. We thank you for Jesus Christ offered up for us, Jesus Christ raised again from the dead and vindicated in the sight of the world, raised to the right hand of the Father who intercedes for us forever. We thank you for the new and the living way which he has opened through his flesh, through the curtain, and by his blood that we can come to you and see your glory. O oh Lord, you who made light shine out of the darkness, have caused us to see the light of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Savior. And so we pray that you would give us grace to believe him and to trust him and to hold on to him for he has ascended and to cling to him where he is and where our lives are hid with him. Not to allow our doubts and suspicions and wonderings to get in the way. Not to allow our questions to crowd out our faith. O oh Lord, help us to receive as little children the truth that you are raised, and in you so shall we be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.